Hey, are you here? I'm kidding. I know you could be anywhere, but you are tuned in to the Paul Leslie Hour, so we know that and we thank you. Oh, we are excited about today's show. This is Paul's second interview with a legendary songwriter, Mr. Bob McDill. Now, this interview went down at Bob's house. Bob McDill wrote some iconic songs. Amanda, Don't Close Your Eyes, Louisiana Saturday Night, Gone Country, Good Old Boys Like Me, It Must Be Love, Song of the South, and so many others. And did you hear the news? Bob McDill is joining the Country Music Hall of Fame. Along with Tanya Tucker and Patti Loveless, McDill is in the Hall of Fame Class of 2023. Hey, and one of the first to report on McDill's induction was SavingCountryMusic.com. We'd like to say hello to our friends at Saving Country Music, which covers great country singers and songwriters like Bob McDill. So before we get into it, let's remind you to please subscribe to the Paul Leslie Hour on YouTube. It's free, it's fun, and it's easy. And you won't miss exclusive content just like this. So, let's begin. You got what you got a good act, a good uh, voice and pronunciation for radio or whatever. Whatever you mixed works real well. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Well, it's a great pleasure, an honor to be in the home of Mr. Bob McDill. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Glad to have you. It's an honor. So this is our, our second interview. The first interview was was done by telephone, but it's an honor to be here in your home. Mm-hmm. And for all the folks out there, there's some news. You are now an inductee of the Country Music Hall of Fame, the highest honor in country music. <laughs> so they tell me, Yes. So congratulations. Thank you, sir. So how did you find out? How did the, how did that news come to you? Well, my friend Don Schlitz, who's another one of those uh, writers like myself who who's in the Country Music Hall of Fame, but a person you've never heard of, called me for lunch and said, I, I need your advice. And I thought, well, Schlitz doesn't need my advice. So we sat there for a few minutes, and then here came all the people. Surprise! And sat down with us and said, "You're you're now a member, due to be inducted in October, I think." In October, w- what was going through your head when they told you? Well, nothing. <laughs> that happens a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> Just taking it as it comes. Yes, right. Don and I were talking about old times, and then when they sat down, I thought, "Who are these people, and what do they want?" And then they, they sprang that on me. I'm hoping you can take us back. Tell us, give us just kind of like a, a snapshot. What was life like growing up in Texas? Well, uh, I grew up in a little hamlet, Walden or Terrell Park. It was kind of way back then. That's been a long time ago. It was a little Gulf Coast hamlet south of Beaumont. It was truck farms and egg farms. I don't know what it is now, but uh, my dad was a realtor. He worked in town. Mom was a bookkeeper at American National Bank. They both commuted. And uh, it was a pretty nice place to grow up. Pretty nice. 
What kind of things were you interested in? Fishing and hunting and uh, yeah. fishing and hunting. Mother would take us to the end of town every Saturday to the Terrell Public Library in Beaumont and make us check out a book and then make us read it. Yeah. And uh, so that that was a good beginning for the uh, that made us bookish, I guess, my brother and I. Right. Well, anybody who has been in your house, you're going to look around and you will definitely be certain this is an outdoorsman. <laughs> I suppose. Not as much as I used to. No. Has nature, being out there in the woods or being out there by the water, has that been a source of inspiration for you? Yes, I think so. Uh, I think so. We... uh to me, when I was a child, you know, the Hudson River painters, those painters that uh, up in New York, and northern New York, who painted those fabulous landscapes of the wilderness, that's what the whole world looked like to me as a child. That, that awe-inspiring, at least the outdoors did. Can you tell us about the first time you attempted on your own to write a song? I don't know about the first time, but I began to tinker with that at about 15 or 16. And then I'd come barging into the den where my parents would be watching, were watching television and make them listen to something. <laughs> my dad would say, oh, not right in the middle of gun smoke. And <laughs> mother would make him turn down the TV and they'd have to listen to some little ditty that I'd written. And then I'd trail back off to my bedroom. Can you remember when the stuff that you were, you know, writing and putting together, when people started to look at it or listen to it, I should say, and say, wow, Robert here is, he's writing some good stuff. Uh, probably when I was in college, I, we, uh, we had a little folk group little folk trio and we played in a little uh a little uh joint there in the downtown where all the college kids went on weekends and and uh behind that hotel there where the, where the tap room was with bill hall and cowboy jack clement had just coincidentally built a studio gulf coast recording studio they had imported alan reynolds and dickie lee down there to write songs and and so Alan and Dickie would come in and sing, take up the mic, sing a little guest shot, and Jack Clement would. So that's where we met, and Alan began to hear some of my little songs that we were doing and showed some interest. Can you remember what was going through your head when you first decided you were going to set out to Tennessee to give this a shot? What was going through my head? I was in the Navy at the time. Naval Reserve, two years active duty, and uh, I, I was corresponding with Alan. They had gotten me a couple of little, little recordings, Sam Sham and Perry Como, and uh, I was sending songs to Memphis. They were in Memphis at the time, and then Alan wrote me and said, we'd like for you to come up and join us in Memphis when you get out of the Navy, and so they didn't have to ask me twice. You were excited to go. You bet, yes. Why? What was it? What, what were you? What were you thinking about that? Just a new well, adventure. Well, it was really all I wanted. It was all I wanted was to be in music, one way or another. 
Right. Uh, thought about being an engineer. I thought about being a producer. I thought about being a singer. Thought about all those things. And finally settled on the one thing I was good at, which was writing songs. And gave up all the other pursuits. Yeah. Yeah, and there was never, I mean, I, I've listened to and I love that record that you made, Short Stories. Thank you. But there was never more of an impulse. I know there had to have been other people who had encouraged you to record again. Ah, I've had some little feelers from RCA, for example, but I don't think they were that serious, and I didn't really want it anyway. I made a single for Polygram at one time, which was a big label at the time. And uh, I remember when I finally got the records in the mail, they had printed the labels backwards. The A side was printed on the B side, the B side was printed on the A side, and I, and I thought, maybe this is an omen. <laughs> maybe it's not going to go well in that, in that area at all. So. <laughs> and so you just said, you know what, songwriting, that's what I'm going to pursue. And about the time, about that time, Alan Reynolds and I wrote a little, uh, I wrote a folk song called Catfish John, and uh, I was a folky, and Alan had a folky background too, and so it uh, turned out to be a country hit. Right. So I thought, well, I can do this. I can, uh, I can write for radio, you know. Was Perry Como the very first recording artist to record something that you wrote? No, uh, that would have been, uh, I think, Randy and the Radiance. I never, I've never even heard the record, but they recorded one. Uh, Bonnie's Part of Town, that was the first thing that was ever recorded of mine. Okay. But Perry Como was the biggest, like the first big artist. First chart record, yes. What did you think when that happened? Oh, I was thrilled. The bigger thrill, Alan and Dickie recorded that song, Happy Man, which Perry Como recorded later, as the Jones Boys. They did a studio uh, recording of it, and it was a much better record than the Perry Como record, but they, it was a local hit on the Jones Boys, Alan and Dickie. And uh, I remember being in Houston where I'd go to the KPRC and, and record record my songs in the studio with the radio and we're driving back from the studio and and they're cute girls in the back seat and john mcmurray and i my friend were riding along and that came on the radio what a thrill that was what a thrill first time i'd ever heard one of my songs on the radio how, how did it feel how did it feel oh i don't know <laughs> felt good <laughs> yeah. Did you tell everybody around? Did you say, hey, that's my song? Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Would you say that throughout your songwriting journey, and my, what a journey it's been, has confidence been, so, have you always been confident about your abilities? Have there ever been times that you doubted yourself? Oh, Yes. But uh, it was a period there of 10 or 15 years, which I, when I was in what's called the zone or the, uh, that they referred to as the zone when I didn't doubt myself. Uh, but then toward the end when, uh, when I decided to retire, I, nothing was getting recorded. I didn't like what was I was hearing on the radio. 
I didn't understand what I was hearing on the radio. So that was uh, something, and I lost confidence, and something was telling me it's time to go home and give this up, which was hmm. probably overdue at the time. Can you remember the, the, the last day that you worked as a songwriter? The, 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 your last time where you were writing songs? I do not. I remember the day I packed up all my things at the office there in uh, Universal and went home. Yeah. I sort of expected the employees to be lined up in front of the elevator begging me to stay, but <laughs> there was nobody lined up in front of the elevator. Yeah. It didn't happen. I just walked out with no fanfare whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that can work sometimes? Yes. Yeah. And writing for you now, do you write? I know that there's the whole short stories and outdoor writing. Do you still pursue that? No, I do not. I uh, did that for about 10 years and don't do anything now except just play, garden and right. tinker. And You have a beautiful garden, by the way. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Would you say that, I mean, I was listening to a lot of these songs, which I knew very, very well. I know I know your music very, very well. And I was thinking, is there an enduring theme here? And I thought, well, you know, there's all different types of subjects here. But one enduring theme seems to be the South comes up again and again, the Southern states. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the, the Southland, this place that we're in right now? I uh, I didn't understand it. We I had we had a fourth grade teacher who was a fond of Faulkner and read Faulkner to us in the fourth grade. But I was an English major in college, and when I got all I'd ever had in high school was the New England poets and New England writers. It was as if Faulkner and Tennessee Williams and those people didn't exist, and. Then when I got to college, we started studying those people, and I had an epiphany that we have a great literature and a great literary tradition down here. Uh, so that was sort of an eye-opener. Uh, then I had a great friend who taught uh, history at South Carolina who was a great Southern scholar, and uh, he and I spent a lot of fishing time together fishing, and, and uh, he introduced me to a lot of Great writers, Robert Penn Warren, for example, had a huge influence on me. That's that's a book where that's a book that uh, a lot of uh, uh, good old boys like me came from. That mm -hmm. idea. Would you say that there is a song of yours that you think is your best work? Uh Well, there's some that you've never heard of that are that I think are. There's one that Ro, uh, that uh, Roger Murr and I wrote called "Paradise," stuck out here in Paradise that John Anderson recorded was not a hit. And there's one that I wrote alone. Uh, uh, I'm dancing as fast as I can. That Juice Newton recorded that was not a hit. Those to me hold up even now. Uh, I I can't. I can't find the line or a word in there that I would change. Hmm. Also, 
Dad Seals and I wrote uh, Everything That Glitters Is Not Gold for him, and it was a number one record. I wouldn't change a word in that one either. Hmm. I like that Paradise song a lot. That's a good one. Good. Thank you. Tell us about Don Williams. What kind of guy was he? He was a very nice, gentle family man uh, and a, an old folky. He had been a member of uh, the Pozo Seco Singers, which had some minor hits. And uh, when he, Alan Reynolds lured him into, always loved his voice, and lured him to, Alan Reynolds, by the way, is the fellow that later on discovered Garth Brooks and Crystal right. Gale and everybody else you can think of. Yeah. But uh, he lured Don to town. And Don and I were worked together in the Jack Clements Publishing Company and got to be friends and wrote a few songs together and had a great relationship. It seems like the, the three of you, Alan Reynolds and Dickie Lee, you know, this was like a kind of a, this is a, a lifelong friendship. We came to Nashville together. Yeah. Those two guys lured me to Memphis, and then, and then uh, Jack Clement made them an offer to come to Nashville. Didn't make me an offer, but I tagged along hoping for something, and huh. so the three of us moved here together about 1970. You know, I spoke with, with Dickie Lee, and we were sitting on a leather couch just like this at his house, and he, so humble, he said, Hey, if you if there had not been Bob McDill or Alan Reynolds, you wouldn't be sitting here. You wouldn't know who I was. Wow. What do you think of that? Too humble? Uh, I don't know. Too humble. <laughs> yeah. Dickie was a Dickie was a teenage heartthrob. You know, by the time he was twenty years old, he was patches and I saw Linda yesterday and those he was out on the road making money while the rest of us were trying to <laughs> write songs and make a break into the business. I was listening last night to Song of the South, and there's really no song that I can think of that is like that. What's amazing to me is how two people, I mean, more than two people have recorded it, but like the difference between the Bobby Bear version, where it's, it's really sad, like you can feel the heartache in it, and then Alabama, I don't necessarily, because it's just a totally different vibe, I don't think about the, the, the heartache as much with the Alabama version. What did you think of the different interpretations of Song of the South? Well, it, it was also, I think, uh, Tom T. Hall recorded it and yeah. some others. Uh, each one of those is a little bit different interpretation, I guess. Uh, Bobby Bear just has a way of injecting that sad, mournful, you know, 500 miles from home sort of yeah. thing into whatever he does. Uh, thankfully, Alabama, there was a verse in there about uh, winter was hot and winter was wet and summer was dry. Mama, she was old at 35 which is very dark, uh, and they had sense enough to leave that out hmm. <laughs> and make it a make it a little more palatable for the, the public, you know. Hmm. 
Were you trying to make a statement with Song of the South? Well, it's a song about the Depression era South. Right. And I think I just read, uh, not to get too studious on you, but I think I just read I'll Take My Stand, of that book written by the Vanderbilt agrarians who were all Vanderbilt fellows who were lamenting the loss, of, written in the third, lamenting the loss of the old agrarian rural South, you know, beginning to industrialize. But they were all gentlemen, all those people who wrote, they were all gentlemen with soft hands. And uh, the people in that song, those hard scrabble farmers couldn't wait to get off those farms. Right. You know, Daddy took a job with the TVA, that was a government, Tennessee Valley Authority, bought a washing machine and a Chevrolet, it was the best they'd ever had it. Uh, hmm. They were not at all sad to leave those little hard scrabble farms. Or tenant, as some of them were tenants, you know, as tenant farmers. Didn't own anything. Hmm. I remember asking John D. Loudermilk, what makes a great song a great song? And he said, what makes a great song a great song is when somebody records it. <laughs> Loudermilk should be in the Country Music Hall of Fame. I have no idea why he's not. He should be in there. Should have been there long before I, I'm, I've been in. I, I will be in there. Uh, but there's there's truth in that, of course. How do you define a good song? Well, I, I, I say it's hard to argue with success. I guess it would have to be a. Most people would think, well, it needs to be a hit record, as Loudermilk's saying. Somebody records it. But I don't think I don't think every good song I've ever written has been is is uh, known. I don't think there are songs that no one's ever heard of that of mine that are good that hold up even today. Hmm. But they're just they're just not commercial. They're just not ready not commercial. But the, the public wouldn't wouldn't enjoy them, I don't think. Hmm. But you think there's some truth in what Loudermilk says in that, hey, you're also here to make a buck. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yes, there is. Yep, you've got to make a living. Thus, you look at songs in my catalog like "Baby's Got Her Blue Jeans On," etc. Uh, yeah. It doesn't have anything to say. It's just a cute little ditty. But right. I think I did it very well. Right. All bragging aside. And Mel McDaniel did a fantastic job of it, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You you wrote all types of songs, you know, from Amanda to Baby's Got Her Blue Jeans On. Uh, Would you say there was a certain style of song that was easier for you to write? Mm. No. No. They're all They're all hard. <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears. I, I like to say Amanda was the last gift I got. It, that came to me in about 30 seconds. After that, it was blood, sweat, and tears for <laughs> 30 years. When you were writing Amanda, what were you thinking? Did you have any idea that this was an exceptional song? Because it is. Well, thanks. I was sort of... It was sort of a... Uh, an imitation of the band, yeah, that great uh, Canadian rock group. It was sort of an imitation of that with the rural lyrics and the, and it was kind of a funky rock and roll 
thing originally, and Don and Alan Reynolds made it into a uh, a country record. Hmm. Thankfully, what would you say was the biggest motivation? Because you had such a a, a working a, a workman's mentality, nine to five. Hey, this is my job. I'm writing songs. What was motivating you to keep going and to keep working? Oh boy, you know, I life. Uh, I had finally found something that I could do and do well, and I had finally found myself in a position with Colonel Bill Hall as my publisher that I was in the catbird seat, and I was not going to let anybody down. Myself, Bill Hall, uh, the staff, they were all looking to me for another recordable song, and Bill was on me all the time, and I was happy to be in that position, very happy. Because I'd been in situations before where the uh, the songs didn't get didn't get shown, didn't get didn't get plugged, didn't get sent to anyone. They just sat there, and so this it was very refreshing to be in that position with uh, Bill Hall. You've received a lot of compliments through the years. Not only these kind of honors like the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, now the Country Music Hall of Fame coming up here, but also. I'm sure writer to writer, artists, even fans of music. You know, we were talking to our friend Howard here. He was, he's been telling me the past couple of days about how, hey, some of these songs that that was my life. You know, good old boys like me. What's been the biggest compliment you've received? Well, things like what Howard and I were just talking about about how he that meant so much to him growing up. I had a couple from Kentucky just contact me a month or so ago, and she said that song changed her life. <laughs> she brought by all sorts of things for me to autograph and spent some time with, with us and had coffee, and that's quite a compliment. Wow. What's going through your head when people tell you things like that? Or, you know, I was talking to somebody not long ago about some of these songs, and he was uh, he was saying, I probably listened to that song a thousand times. Wow. <laughs> What's going What was the question? What's going on? What's, what, do you, what do you think when somebody says something like that? It's changed my life. Well, I immediately sort of, well, I sort of disassociate myself with it, thinking that that's the song. It's not me. Uh, that that was a moment in my life when I wanted to say that particular thing and said it. And uh, so there it is. It's a piece of art, and it's in my past, and I'm glad I did it. But you're not complimenting me. You're complimenting what I did back then. <laughs> I always like to end the interview just open-ended. You know, we just never know who's watching. We never know who's listening. What would you say to anybody out there who's joining us? Uh, you mean, you probably mean young people who want to get in the music business? People who are fans <laughs> of music? Anything. Thank you all, fans. Thank all of you. Thank you very much. If you want to be, if you want to be in the music business, I'll tell you what the Colonel, Colonel Bill Hall told all of us. Work hard and save your money. <laughs> 
that's the only thing you can that thing works in every field and every uh pursuit in life work hard and save your money and uh i don't know anything other than that write what write what's uh what you know and what's important to you and don't give up your art uh i know a lot of people are afraid to try to say anything in a song uh but you can you don't need to be either a commercial hack a sellout or a, a great artist someone who is only known in the coffee shops and the nightclubs you can do both you can write hits in the daytime go home and write your art at night or whatever i did that yeah you 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 seem to be this is my take on you anyways. You seem to be a testament to having a work ethic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you find yourself, if you find that you're good at something, you really need to do it. I, I was always puzzled by people who treated it as a hobby. Yeah. Who uh, waited around for the muse to find them or tap them on the shoulder. And... Uh, Alan Reynolds is a good, uh, uh, Alan, you know, he, and, and Henry Mancini, read about Henry Mancini. Where do you find inspiration, Henry? Every morning at 9 a.m. at the piano. Uh, if you're going to make, be a songwriter, heck, work at it, hmm. you know. Has there been anything that has surprised you about your life? Surprised me. Not really. <laughs> I can't think of anything. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, getting old is a surprise. Yeah, that getting old is a surprise. How is it a surprise? Well, you just can't do as many things as you used to. And uh, hunting, being out there when it's five degrees in a duck blind, that's, that's kind of lost its romance for me. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and... Uh, just being limited in a lot of different ways. That's a surprise. Hmm. Never expected that to happen. What would you say has been the best thing about having the experiences that you've had? Uh, the best thing about having those experiences. Gosh. Well, I hope I've... I hope I've had a big life, a good life. I've sure tried tried to have a big life and a good life. Tried to be good to people, even though I know I've failed a lot. But uh, I can't say that I held back like a wallflower and, and didn't make an attempt at everything. Hmm. Well, Bob McDill, thank you so much for having me in your home. You have written some songs that uh, are eternal. I hope so, Paul. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to meet you face yes, to face. Yes, sir. You too. Thank An you. honor. Enjoyed it. Thank you. You know, the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by people like you. Listeners, viewers, please go to thepaulleslie.com slash support, and you'll know what to do when you're there. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who contributes. Performance of The Entertainer intro song by John Primerano. And of course, 
This is your announcer speaking. See you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.